Welcome to the Think It Isn't Until It Is podcast. I'm Finn. I'm Tim. I'm Guy. So, chapter four, uh, the splitter years, we've called this one, summer 2008 to spring 2010, in which we discover the joys and logic of splitter travel, return to the Brighton loft to record sort of revolution, meet a surfer dude called Ben Howard, head back to the USA, discover Australia and China, and attempt to have a seminal punk heroine removed from Carnegie Hall. <laughs> right. Again, all of that actually happened, for real. Good God. This is a non-fictional podcast. So the splitter years, we yeah. should explain, we should explain, you know, we'd, we've, we've done the touring, we've done the public transport years where we were mm. catching the train and, and hiring cars and, and so on and so on. And we'd hit the moment where we had too many people and too much stuff. So we needed a splitter van. Do you want, do someone want to explain what a splitter van is? Yeah, I mean, there might be people listening to this that um, in bands who think, duh, you know, why didn't you think of that before? But I think the fact was that we almost didn't have enough gear to warrant it, we were still able to kind of pack stuff in estate cars or even not estate cars. Um, but but at this point, I think I started playing on a regular drum kit as opposed to a kind of mini drum kit. Um, and you you maybe had more than one guitar. Guy definitely had an acoustic bass as well as an electric bass. And, um, and so, yeah, we decided that we would just take everything with us when we went to Europe. So we, or, or anywhere. Um, so the splitter is a traditional van, like a kind of transit-shaped um, van, but you it, it is literally split. So the uh, passengers sit uh, on the half towards the driver, and at the very back is a kind of little cupboard, as it were, where you put all of your gear, and it's isolated. You can just pack it up as, as high as it goes and shove in as much stuff as you possibly can, and that's your splitter van, traditionally hired from places like Matt Snowball, who is now no, no longer with us, and Tiger Tours. Yeah, civilised. Civilised, yeah. I mean, it's funny, man, because w- w- when you're at that level, when you're at the splitter tour level, you see other bands in splitters and you kind of go, oh, yeah, I remember yeah. that one. Yeah, oh, we had that one when we did Belgium or, you know. Absolutely. The vans become very, you get, get very attached to these yeah. vans and, um, and, and some of them are, are pretty ropey and some of them are pretty nice and it's, a, it's very much a lottery. Yeah. Some of them have got like uh, entertainment systems in, like you can watch DVDs as you go. Go along. I mean, this is kind of considered. We we never had those, did we? We I think there was, there was one time when we went to Norway in a splitter van where I remember everyone was watching a a, a big compilation of Family Guy on on a DVD, and I was driving, so I I didn't get to see it. I just remember hearing the <laughs> the voices, and I, I think that was one time we had a, a little entertainment system. But mostly, we just made compilation CDs. That's, that's that's the thing, yeah. Was that a journey, Tim, where we crossed a border? You were driving. We crossed the border between Sweden and Norway. And despite it being just in a, a barren, featureless wilderness, there was suddenly just a small group of very young men in uniform stood there. And they stopped us and said, hey, how are you guys doing? You got any weapons? First question, you got any guns? So they were looking for hunters, you know. Um, and, uh, and alcohol, snaps, very interested in. Have you got any alcohol? And I remember they said to you, Tim, do you have any drugs? And you turned round, looked at me, and then looked back at them and went and said, not really, no. (laughs) 
Oh, and God. the scariest thing, I... the scariest thing was I might have done. And no, I, no, I no, remember... that was I... that, that that was a, was that that a was different a, time. That, that was the different... ingest. That was the that was the ingest, not arrest moments um, yeah, of our touring because Terrifying. I remember that. I remember that trip, and it was really foggy and and wintry, and you couldn't see the borders coming yeah, up. But true. we were very aware that there was one coming up, and then all of a sudden it was like entering a movie mm. yeah. with armed guards, and we were, we were both uh, pretty intense. I mean, there's yeah. the other time we were in Norway where we got picked up by this guy in this like splitter vehicle and we said hey mate yeah oh great we we're gonna play bergenfest and we were like oh mate you know um it, you don't happen to know where we get any weed do you and he said i'm a policeman and we were like <laughs> okay great nice. that's right okay uh joking obviously yeah. um yeah uh can't wait to play yeah that's the thing there's for you often get picked up from the airport by um at, at festivals by people who do other jobs so you know policemen <laughs> but also we've had like True. a airline pilot but um i guess the reason why we're saying all this about the splitter is because the um once we'd i mean we'll go back to the recording of sort of revolution but once we'd recorded it for the first time ever we were all in a position where we didn't have jobs and we'd done some groundwork and we could tour and we also needed to tour so we kind of you know were able to say to our agents right brilliant just just sign us up you know two week tours whatever you want to do We'll do it, um, and and Lord knows we did we did do it. On we this did album. it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. we we said to the agents. I mean, we'd all we'd all committed at this point. We were all in. We were two albums deep. The press had been great on distance and time. The radio had been good. We had France in the pocket. We had Holland getting getting cooking up nicely. We'd done a bunch of festies. I think it just felt like. All right, guys. This is this is actually worth going all in. You know, let's see how it goes. But you know, let's 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 do it. And so we could say to our and and so there was demand. Yes. Not not demand for a sellout. You know, fly around the world tour. But there was demand for um, a week in Belgium, two weeks in Holland, two weeks in France. We we started to touch Germany a little more when we got German oh, radio. Sort of revolution. This was like two, yeah, two weeks in Germany. Yeah, you know, fully, and we, yeah. we started to reach out a little bit. I think we did. I think we did a bit of Portugal, a bit of Spain for the first time. Just just the agents could actually, you know, book us knowing that we didn't have anything. We didn't have to check whether or not Tim could get time off work anymore. We were like, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, let's just do it and. Um, and so the splitter years, you know, you pack the splitter and you bring your own gear. It also means you're not flying. So you can bring all the gear you want to bring. You can bring your own amps. You can bring your own guitar. You can bring all your nice guitars if you've got any, um, you know, and all, all that, all that kind of stuff. And it, it really was like long distance European style, long distance mm. driving around. And it's beautiful. You really get yeah. to know each other on, Definitely. These, on these drives, don't you? It's just really nice. Yeah. And, uh, and, and merch. It opens up for the first time ever. We were able to transport boxes of our own albums and our, and our shirts, which we'd never had to consider before. You couldn't carry that around on the Eurostar. No. So that was new. Um, I loved it as well because, um, as Finn, I think, mentioned earlier, I uh, I had a previous career as a backline tech. So packing the back of a splitter was just seventh heaven for me. So I fitted into that role really easily where Finn and Tim um, took over the the divvying out the merch tasks it was agreed that because i'm and driving because although yeah and also i didn't have a driver's license so i loved that it was like you two were my personal chauffeurs <laughs> i could just get wasted after every gig and get chauffeured around it was just a don't we don't we know it's it, a dude. dream don't, don't I, know I, know it. I know still oh yeah i know i know but um but yeah but um the task were, were agreed that pretty much was you guys would rush out and 
and sort out doing the merch during the splitter years. And my job was to tear down the stage, pack everything away. Also, Finn, because you just knew you could trust me with, you know, as you said, you're bringing out your nice guitars now. So, um, you know, you, were, you weren't too eager for anyone else to be allowed to touch your dad's guitar in particular. I remember it was very strict rule. Yeah, of- I mean, I, I, I just... I just saw so many, you know, like when you're on the EasyJet flight looking out of the window mm-hmm. and you see the handlers and you see your instruments go up the, go up the trolley exactly. and they throw them and they chuck them and you're like, you know, so at least when you're in a splitter, you think, okay, there's no baggage handlers going to be like throwing my guitar, yeah. you know, neck first, you know, for fun. In, 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 you know, it's, it's just such, such a horrifying sight. And I did see a bunch of, I did see a few... A few roadies trying to jam my guitars into the case while the capo was still attached to it exactly. and sort of kneel on the case to try and shut it. And I thought, okay, guy, you know, you've got to just step in yeah. and do that for me, you know. Yeah, yeah. I think Timmy would Timmy would run out and lay out the table. I would do if only as a solo encore. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Um, and then why? And then and then so then I would do it. Timmy would then be ready with the hello CDs. T-shirts. And then I would rush to the merch stall while Guy would then pack down the stage. Yeah. It was a real kind yeah. of like, you know, op- you know, well-oiled, you know, low low impact operation. It was it was it was it was good. I I I love this period. And we've got a nice we've got a nice picture of us doing exactly that at a Prinzen bar, I think. Um because um well, we're again we're kind of skipping a whole load of stuff, but we had Ben Howard as our our support, so he would come out and sell his merch as well. So I've got a picture of the three of us doing doing the merch at Prinzen Bar, and um, you know it was it was lovely because at that point you it was could, lovely, yeah. You could spare the time, you could meet people, you could sell sell all your stuff, yeah. And I mean, without wanting to sound too kind of cliche, just really get to know your your audience you know see yeah. first i mean and it's really is, nice because you who know you're coming to your show people who come to a show and enjoy the show genuinely don't tell you afterwards that it sucked so it's really nice when you meet you know a hundred people and they all go oh you're really good and you just think oh that's nice i mean occasionally you get someone going yeah i saw you last year and you were loads better what happened and you'd be like yeah okay next <laughs> oh yeah thanks a lot it was really good thanks you know yeah there's always but one. you know it was like sort of revolution the splitter years it started with us um, having a little bit of a moment of realisation, didn't it? After Distance and Time. Mm. It was interesting because in the process of writing this book, Tim, you reminded me that, yes, you're right. We didn't record Distance and Time in my loft. Sort of it revolution. Like, sort of revolution, yeah. It wasn't like a, a front-footed decision on my part. It was the result of a lot of no's. We asked a lot of, we did, a lot of people were asked to produce the record. And you're right. I don't remember who we asked, but everybody kind of said no. So we were kind of gently forced into it, yeah. really, weren't we? Well, there was also, um, I guess, financial concerns too, but... Um, it was another case of you you making the record already, it, doing what we thought might end up being essentially demos for the record. But when it became clear that it was not going to be recorded elsewhere with big name producer man uh, or, or woman, um, you you did you turned into. I mean, I think Maker and Sort of Revolution itself were particular um, instances where you turned the initial recording into a finished track so maker changed immeasurably um from the first incarnation and and sort of revolution did as well i mean it went from being a kind of biscuits era three-piece band on it to to you constructing this entire kind of beat and this entire kind of world with extra 
overdubs and so on and 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 yeah essentially producing it yourself and you i guess you wouldn't have been able to do that so much when you did biscuits because you didn't have the kind of um the experience of seeing how how songs are put together yeah i mean that's Um, that's absolutely true but i had the same equipment though yeah yeah. so i kind of it was kind of like i still had a mixing desk at that point and we were still jammed into the loft and it it was a it we we dealt with it in a really nice way, I think, because it was a bit of a come down after the whole Andy Barlow, you know, nice production, all that kind of stuff. To then to try and not dwell on the point that this feels like a step backwards, you know, which Guy mentions in the book, you know, that it, it did feel like a bit of a step backwards. We're back in the loft. We've we've rewound to two thousand and six, and we're we're back doing this DIY thing. But it really was just you know we needed to we needed to break even so badly that it was like we need to pop a record in that costs nothing yeah. you know so you know you know there's 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 no way around that we have to make we have to try and make a record for nothing yeah i think i think actually if memory serves mr t that you you hit the nail on the head there when speculating as to how how you know when you said people were approached i remember people were and i remember that as you said before, Finns, Andy's mates' rates had what what had made distance and time happen. And I think what happened was there were producers who were up for doing it, but what they were not up for doing was offering mates' rates. And no, the numbers were not. and the numbers to us, especially well, the numbers now would sting, but you know, at that point in time it was it was ridiculous. They might as well have said a billion pounds. My fee is yeah. a billion pounds. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah exactly. okay. It's just not gonna happen. <laughs> so so we did. We decamped very hot summer. We got into the mix. We we did it. Timmy would come down at weekends, guy would like stay in my spare room turned it into a massive you know basically a bus bunk situation back there <laughs> and like yeah we just we just we just plowed through it didn't we basically got tried to write the best stuff we could mm. sort of revolution is a real highlight track for me as a producer as well it just sounds awesome i can't believe i did that in a loft on a on an old soundcraft desk it just sounds yeah. amazing and yeah yeah and um, see it all see it all for me as well so yeah. same I mean, we, we had this ambition from doing all the tours that we wanted to make a record, but we also knew that, or at least I knew at this point, that what, what you recorded wasn't necessarily what was going to hit the stage. So don't think about, don't connect those two so much. Write the songs, make the record the best you can, and then when you play live, it'll be, it'll be what it is. It'll sound different, it'll sound more real, it'll sound more live. And yeah, sort of revolution is a little bit all over the place as a coherent body of work. But um, 2008 was an interesting time. There was lots of different music floating around and and we were just getting influenced all over the place by loads of different records. And, and you know, and we, I wanted to make some up-tempo stuff. I wanted to get out of this 3-4 trap that we'd got into quite a lot. So sort of revolution and see it all um and nothing's ever finished you know we wanted to just get a little bit more you know interesting i guess yeah. on, on 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 the board and also q and a is a very um and i Q&A. mean that we quite often i mean that gets forgotten because it's very difficult to play live i think so but at the time that was a very important track because not only did giles peterson pick up on it yeah but um but also i remember tom york yeah. liking that one radiohead made a big song and dance and it's so weird wasn't it because you just don't know, like all of our records are so different. And I, and I think we kind of started this addiction to that with sort of revolution because, you know, Biscuits for Breakfast got like the Nick Luscombs and the XFMs of this world. Distance and Time got the Zane Lowe's and Colin Murray's and the Radio 1's of this world. It, this is in British mm, examples, mm. obviously. And the Radio Nova's in Paris and, and so on. And the, and the Byte FM and the Fluxes in 
Germany and stuff. And then sort of revolution opened up a whole new world of the whole Giles Peterson. We did Made a Veil session mm. for Giles, which was really nice. And it's kind of like, who are we? We're, we're indie band one minute. Yeah. New soul the next minute, you know, it was, it was quite, it was, we were just as confused as, <laughs> as everybody else at that point. But yeah, Q&A was awesome. I love Q&A. You know, it's a song about being interviewed and fancying the person who's interviewing you. And, 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 and I'd done a lot of interviews at that point. So I was, I, I just, I was really intrigued at writing songs that were kind of about different things. But yeah, after we recorded it and um, mixed it and did our best, you know, in our loft, I mean, I think we did great on that record to do a record up there. I mean, that's kind of amazing. Um, then the splitters were hired and off we, off we trundled in, in, into Europe, you know, let's do this. So it was, it was our launch gig, wasn't it? It was our launch gig at the Roundhouse yeah. that we met Ben for the first time. Roundhouse, um, the studio venue. Freedom, Freedom Studios, I And believe. no one knew what to expect. He really did show up with a Tesco bag with all his stuff in it. Yeah, I mean, like, it, it was a last minute, um, the, so the person who was originally supposed to, it might have been daughter, I don't know, but the person who was supposed to do it dropped out, and then we were pitched this guy from Devon, and um, and we were like in no position to, to say to, to say no. There wasn't any music to hear either at this point. He didn't have anything online. He hadn't released anything. And yeah, he showed up and, and, and knocked it out of the park. I mean, Ben Howard was amazing. I mean, he still is really good, obviously. But he was, a, he was the tap guy, tap guitar, sat down, loads of beats, big voice, you know, songs about trees and sea and man and wolves. He hadn't written wolves at this point. He wrote that when we were on that tour. But I mean, yeah, he was just amazing. And... And so after the show, we were just kind of like, uh, what are you doing for the next sort of three months? And, <laughs> um, and he was like, yeah, uh, you know, I don't know. And so we're like, come and tour with us. I mean, he, Ben's a really amazing example of, of, that, of that route through, which is do the, do the support tours until literally you're ready to go. And he supported Xavier Rudd and Angus and Julia Stone and us. I mean, he just support toured his way around Europe five, six, seven, eight times before... He did his headline tour, and by that time, he had enough people to sell out all the venues he'd been supporting in. You know, yeah, it's a great, yeah. it's a great route, and you could just see him get better and better every show. You know, yeah. he was just, he was so, so good. It was such a pleasure to tour with. It was also a very good um, fit as well, like uh, because it wasn't, you didn't get the impression that he was trying to copy anyone. It wasn't like a kind of Fink facsimile or anything, but it was obviously the kind of thing that people who liked us were going to like. So they they came and they got this full that's where i got this sort of feeling of the full show you know you could mm, show up and yeah. see ben and then see us and you'd go home thinking well that was you know 10 euros well spent or whatever it was ben is a very good example of um finn i'm gonna have to give you plaudits here but finn has always been very uh concerned with making sure that a support act is really good i think possibly because we did a few where we were jammed onto bills with people in the early early days where we felt maybe support acts weren't really very good and not to be mean they just or might just not, not have appropriate been. yeah or just not appropriate exactly the wrong the wrong band wrong night or, or, or yeah. whatever but um yeah but i remember you you're always very keen to make sure that people really enjoyed and still are actually aren't you finn you're very keen to make sure that the support act's going to be really really up to standard and ben was a perfect example of that yeah ben was a mate and also because he's low maintenance man he's a solo acoustic artist with no traveling crew or, or bullshit he's a, he's a bullshit free zone and you know he comes on does his half an hour and then he then he does his merch it was it was just effortless to tour with and mm, mm. You know, we got very lucky with that. And, and our, our fan base absolutely loved him, it, even down to the point that there were a few shows where he got an encore. 
mm. as a support yeah, band yeah. and yeah. um and totally fair enough too he was he was i wanted him to do an encore as well it was like mate we'll, we'll cut a song if you do another one that was just you're on fire tonight like yeah yeah it was great and 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 that 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 sort of revolution tour it just we played everywhere didn't we i mean we played we played everywhere and it was just like oh man so so real yeah, it was like yeah. i felt we were a real touring band at that point you know we, yeah. were, we were getting really road worn you know because also the the other thing about it is that the show i mean i'm gonna say when you are in a splitter and when you've got your gear and you're all sorted the show is the same every night and i don't mean the performance is the same i just mean that you know what you're what you're dealing with you don't have a different drum kit you don't have different sound engineer here and there you know there are some constants and you can really relax into that uh knowing that you can go to you know bordeaux one night and brussels the next night and and so forth and it it's it's really it's relaxing to the point where you can start injecting other things into the performance as well you can actually yeah literally begin performing so you can stand up here and there you can um play other instruments like i think this was the tour i started playing guitar on one of the songs for the first time which which, which song was it six, six weeks, weeks did you say yeah, yeah. i mean this yeah. is a typical kind of rob moment where i was i just brought along my guitar as a spare for for you kind of thing and during the soundtrack i started playing along with you boys and Rob just appeared with a mic and stuck it next to me and said, "There you go," and that was the that was the that was the song. Um, so yeah, that was it. Was just beginning to become, and I think Guy played guitar on Maker as well. I think. Yeah, I the, think so. I yeah. Did. yeah. Did, did, was I the Cajon was the Cajon in the mix at this no, point? No, but it kind not of yet. feels like it should have been, but no, it, not not quite yet. Right. But the vibe of the cajon was already there, sort of thing. The the the, the spirit of the acoustic section of the stage yeah. and indeed set was all, yeah. was being born. That's right. But yeah, I remember I forgot I played guitar on Maker. Oh, the rows, the rows that led to that. <laughs> <laughs> it's very difficult to get a bass player to do stuff, you know, I and mean, we know this. You know, it's very it's an uphill struggle, you know. And um but yeah, I mean the we, we played I remember so many gigs in Germany and France and I mean we just played in so many places and I don't remember the fact that we weren't on a bus. I I, I, I don't remember the splitter runs too much, but I do remember the millions of cheap motels and early starts and the long days, you know, you're driving for seven, eight hours and you arrive, then you load in then you thumb, thumb a quick meal down. Then you, there's nowhere to have a nap. You know, you just chill. Yeah. Sometimes no backstage area. You just do your thing, do the gig, do the merch pack and head to a crappy motel for a room share yeah. experience. And then, you know, and the weeks just pan out in front of you, you know. Plus, can I, can I remind you that as you guys, as the drivers were constantly faced with this challenge, Finn, you and me used to regularly drive to Holland together for some reason, Amsterdam. You and me would always set off. I think we'd set off a little bit early so we could get there, stay at our favourite hotel, go and get a little bit yeah. wasted, have a little hangout before yeah. it all started. Right? I mean, and, but, um, yeah. but when we got there was the perpetual challenge of can we park our van? A, find us what for a, it's a pretty big sizable thing a splitter van so find a spot big enough then find a spot big enough that you can actually park it up against a tree so nobody can open the back doors if you can do that yeah if you can manage that you don't have to lug all your shit to your hotel room that's the thing if you can't manage that you do have to lug all your shit to a hotel all, all, room. Do you all remember the, all the shit you care about i mean obviously we'd leave tim's gear in there because it was like yeah whatever. tim's drums would say yeah, yeah drums but, would say, mean, but guitars guitars and pedal boards they got to come indoors yeah, was, and we would love do you remember hotels 
And we would stay in some two-star hotels in, in, in the middle of Paris where five flights of stairs to, up to the, your room carried two guitars in flight cases. Oh, yes, mate. I mean, Those were the days. You, you, would, you would back up the splitter van to anything. Even a bush yeah. would be fine. Yeah. Oh, like, and, I like, remember uh, you parking uh, like, um, it. Ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, ridiculous parking. Exactly. Yeah. Bushes or like uh, street lamps were the best. If you can get it right yeah. up against the street lamp, then then yeah. then, then no you go. Um, because we heard horror stories on the road, you know, yeah. bands like Noah and the Whale getting all their gear nicked and stuff like yeah. that. And you just kind of go, oh my God, if that happened to us, what would we, what would we yeah. do, you know? Well, we don't have, none of us had the, either the, the, the spare room on our MasterCards or indeed the savings to go and immediately rush out and go and buy it all the next day. Yeah, and the insurance insurance isn't going to pay out quick enough to do tomorrow. Well, we didn't, gig, so. I mean, full disclosure, we didn't actually have tour insurance at that point. You know, we were just winging didn't it. Didn't we? How exciting. <laughs> didn't I didn't we? know that. Yeah, um, no, because we couldn't afford that either. So we were just like, don't, you know... Don't steal the van. <laughs> Please yeah. don't steal the van. And that's the, I suppose you, you are also concerned with the health and safety of your van. And we did have some injuries. We, we had wing mirrors smashed off. We did have, um, we did have one that was horribly carved to fucking Hamburg. Do you remember? We had to park it up there. And, um, and oh, it was we keyed, came out, wasn't it? Yeah, we came out the next morning and someone had keyed. I think, I think there was not a single panel on it that no, hadn't been got, scratched. We got, we got supercharged uh, for that. I mean, I think the scariest moment did. was driving back from Brussels after the wing mirrors got smashed on the splitter. Well, they didn't terrifying. get smashed. They got taken, taken off yeah, the van. Yeah. And so um, we had to buy like pretend mirrors in a garage. Yeah. Gaffer tape them in. I remember. Um, yeah. And just, just, just so that people know, you can't use a, you can't use your your, your rear view mirror because there is no rear view. So without yeah. you, without your wing mirrors, you're driving completely yeah. blind in a giant van. Oh my and, god, I completely you know, forgotten about that. God, that, was, that was scary. We did that. We somehow got yeah, home. Yeah, that yeah. was so intense. And you're driving on the wrong side of the van, on the wrong yeah. side of the road. Yeah. So you are kind of like, there's a lot to think about when you're navigating Amsterdam. With trams, bikes, tourists, stoners, yeah. <laughs> other cars, taxis, and you're like, and I'm on the wrong side of the road, mm. and I'm in a giant van. That was so strange because do you remember? I remember, it was Brussels. I remember when we got there the next morning, and we were aware we'd left our van parked in the middle of a busy sort of street festival, and it was likely to have suffered some sort of ill fate. And when we got there, it wasn't like the entire wing mirror; the actual structure itself was there. It was just the glass. The glass bit had been put. And I remember you saying, Finn. Just saying, why? Why would someone pull? You were someone, like, someone, someone, someone probably someone chopped it. A, I mean, chopped someone needed coke. a mirror yeah. in the middle of the night. I mean, exactly. you know, just yeah. you do the math on that one. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh my God, I need a mirror. What an idiot to tear one out of a yeah. transit. Grim. I know, so grim. Sucks. But you know, we 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 somehow survived those split years, and sort of revolution did us a lot of favors. In in again, in a, in in mm. in ways that we wouldn't have ever foreseen. Like, for example. Giles given us a Made yeah. of Veil session off the back of it, which was like, you know, stuff of dreams, you know, to do Made of Veil, which, which we didn't yeah. get on that the That was fun. We albums. did that with uh, Blair on piano as well. In the, we did. It was just did. massive. And that was a know, lovely like, moment, you know, to hear, see it all in sort of revolution played with the pianos that are on the record. I remember, I remember, you know, I remember that the, our monitoring boxes were like, you know, handmade BBC boxes from the 50s. And the fact that Hendrix or John Lennon yes. had probably used it yeah. at some point. But I also also remember, which isn't quite such a good, great memory, that the fact that the, the staff at Made of Vale couldn't wait to go home because the cricket was on. <laughs> So yes. we did like we did our run through and we were like, oh, man, Q&A, maybe we could do that again. And they were like, no, nope, we're going now. Cricket's on. Yeah, Bye. Yeah. And we were like, it was that. to tape, wasn't it? It was to tape. It was beautiful, man. Really beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. It was lovely to meet Giles. He's such a nice guy. 
Yeah, that was nice. And also KCRW in America as well. That was a good trip. We did um, Spaceland and KCRW session on the same uh, kind of weekend. Uh, and that was, you know, that was another kind of indication that this is this is going places now. Really, you know, exciting. Going into KCRW and playing four songs. And having- yeah, we did. That's right, yeah. because... Jason Bentley, who's who's who was the Morning Becomes Eclectic guy at the at that time, he was like, um, we were so used to European radio where they're like, you have you have three minutes ten seconds from now, and then at KCRW it was more like, sort of revolution. We 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 definitely overplayed it. We went way over time, and he was just like, yeah, dude, just just play as long yeah, as you like, yeah. you know, just just do whatever you want, and. They were. They seemed to be genuinely into us. Yeah. Like you do whatever you want. We love the band. It was such a such a great moment that KCRW session. Yeah, yeah. Is that the one we? Is that the one we released? Yes. Ah. Yeah. The Apologist. You did a, a magnificent version of the Apologist because you had done it for the Carnegie Hall REM gig, which incidentally that's a nice link for you to mention. Oh, that one power anyway. link, but, um, dude. Love that. Love your love yeah. your link work. Yes. yes. Um, Carnegie Hall. Yeah. How did you get that? I don't understand how you you were offered that. I don't understand either. <laughs> um, I it's because I don't know. Is is simple. Was it the that. maker? Was it the maker John Legend? It wasn't Connect. the John Legend connection. No, I don't know what it was. But either way, Michael Dorff, um, through his man Shlomo, who's who's awesome, has become a really good friend. He's like, does these charity gigs every year and they focus on one artist and then they come on and do the encore if they're still alive. So I got offered the REM one. So I said to you, Mr. T, dude, you know, although I have a history with REM in as much as when I backpacked around America as a teenager, I had one cassette and on one side was Joni Mitchell's Hegira, and on the other side was REM's Greatest Hits. So I, there's, I know their Greatest Hits very well. But um, so I asked Timmy for, to give me a, yeah, give me a band fave that I could that's do it, right. and the band would be like, "Oh, dude, you did that song. That's really cool." Well, I just thought for one thing, uh, they wouldn't expect anyone to do a track from the the post drummer leaving era, because REM. So REM's drummer left, and they became a three piece, which some might say is their kind of. You know they're they're on a kind of downturn of their career after that, but they did do some really good songs. So I thought, do the apologist because I heard them play that at Glastonbury and it was fantastic. And I just thought it might fit with with your your vibe as well. Um, so I said, yeah, do that one. That's going to kind of um, make them sit up a little bit, rather than you saying, you know, I'm going to do shiny happy people or whatever. Oh, well, no, but I wasn't going to be able to do any of those They'd because taken. the big boys. I've already that they'd already been divvied yeah. out, you know. Calexico were doing shiny happy people, and I don't know whoever else is on the bill is going to do all is going to do, you know, all the other big all the other biggies. So yes, yeah, the apologist. So yeah, I did play the apologist at Carnegie Hall, which was epic and awesome. Um, but okay, go on then. But what happened backstage? Right, who did you see backstage? Go on, tell. Well, backstage, tell. Back, backstage. I was waiting backstage. I was very, very nervous and and very and very intimidated by this whole thing in the green room and everyone and you know it's all it's just very big time and and I saw this uh, I saw this kind of old woman sort of wandering around <laughs> backstage and and she didn't look, and and she looked way out of place and I and I went up to this bouncer and I was like, dude, there's this, there's this old woman wandering around. I don't think she's don't think she's supposed to be here. Um, she's over there. And, and he was kind of like, yeah, that's fucking Patty Smith, you moron, you know. <laughs> and, um, and, and so, yeah, I'm like, oh, my God. And then I saw her do the encore with REM and it was just yeah, jaw-dropping. Yeah, yeah. so, so incredible. Right. Like, so but the incredible. thing is, she does look like that. Well, like we saw her at Holden Pop and she, she looked like 
you know, like she didn't quite belong backstage and she was sitting talking to her she mate. Look, and... She looks like that. She looks like that crazy old auntie herbalist or yeah. something that lives out in the woods in Montana and, and you know, just, just completely wild. Yes, yes. But mind you, Michael Stipe at this point was rocking this beard that was an epic homeless beard way, oh, before, the beard years? Yeah. way before beards were a thing. And he, he looked really extreme. Um, I mean, extremely cool now, if you think yeah. about it. But at the time, it was just quite shocking to see a man with a beard like that. And you think, but you're wealthy. You're not homeless. <laughs> you don't why, need why have you got that like beard? That. <laughs> this is so, you don't need that beard. That's so weird. That, that, was, that was so amazing, that Carnegie Hall vibe. Because I, 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 it's, you know, the history. Of, you know, we get to play some, you know, I played Albert Hall and I've played, we've played, you know, San Siro. We played at that, uh, um, mm. in the, that was in the Splitter Years or was that previous? Um, that was Splitter Years. in between, in between distance and, and this. So we've got to play some seminal venues. And, you know, when you go into venues like, like you know, um, Carnegie Hall and you think, you know, Nina Simone and you think, you know, you think, you think everybody has played here, yeah. you know, vastly important people. This is the joke, isn't it? It's the, I mean, it's a joke. How do you get to Carnegie Hall? I mean... You know, so yeah, for for you to tick that box, mate, totally get what's it. What's the what's the punchline? Um, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice. Oh yeah, uh, that's yeah. right, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. yeah, practice. Well, we we've certainly we certainly we were still doing that, weren't we? Before we went out, we were were we still at Screaming Croydon rehearsing at this point? No, no, we were Terminal. Were we at that? Terminal at this point? Terminal uh, in London. We'd moved up to Bermondsey. We'd, where was Terminal? When did we? Terminal was in Bermondsey, was it? Yeah. Where's the joint? What? What? I'm confused. The joint now. was in King's Cross. Yeah, that's the one I remember. So where was the yeah. one in between? Terminal was great Terminal. because it was no, like Terminal. Yeah, it felt in, real. Near London Bridge. Near London Bridge. Yeah, it was proper. It, it was a real kind of place. You had, you know, big plaque on the wall with all the people that had played there yeah. and and which years and lots of different rooms. Oh yeah, I do um, remember that. Enough, I do remember you know, Terminal, of course, of course. I remember talking to the owner repeatedly because we rehearsed there so many times over this three year period that I was like, why aren't we on the fucking wall, dude? You know, we're a touring <laughs> band, we're selling records. Why, why aren't we on the wall with, you know, Suede yeah. and, you know, Blur? Come on, man, put us on the wall. I don't think he ever did. No, no I think I he just think laughed you out of the room. And then they closed and moved. And then they closed I think it. he probably did. <laughs> that'll that'll, that'll teach it. him. And turned into an art gallery. Yeah, if only they'd stuck a Fink record on the wall. Might have been a different story. <laughs> Another epic uh, moment in this um, story is when we did One Shot Not um, with Manu Kache for, And that was a sort of a nice moment of... Um, See, doing this is completely random. How did we get one shot not? I know the answer. Well, to that. you'd you'd already done it with um, on your own, hadn't you? With with Manu and Pino. I did it solo because Manu Cache had been using Pretty Little Thing as his ringtone for his phone alarm. Whoa, really? I know it's oh so random. Oh, that's what he told me anyway. Yeah, so so he was kind of like, I need you on the show. Yeah, because you literally wake me up every day. <laughs> Okay. That was really intense meeting Mano and Pino and, and it was amazing. And to do a French TV show mm. was, was really, really cool. Yeah. And but to do it as a band was the next was the next level. It was really, really excellent. Well, yeah. So. Well the nice thing about it was that normally if you get something like that, you you it's like this date in the diary that you kind of look at and think, Oh my god, that's coming up and there's nothing surrounding it and you you just go to that you know tv show and it's all all kind of very nervous and exciting but the good thing about this was when we were in the middle of a tour yeah so we, we, did a gig, we had gig 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 one shot not so we went in there if i may say on kind of on fire yeah you know and um we knew exactly what we were doing and thank god because it was a 
pretty nerve-wracking experience certainly for me absolutely because I, I had to do this duet with well kind of duet with with Manu uh, at the end of this is the thing I'd kind of because I, I already knew the guys and also I was kind of living in Paris I was in Paris a lot at this point so I kind of knew them socially as well and it was just kind of like because I was very I was very relaxed with these guys mm. but the fact that you know with that, that Manu tended to join the bands for a little hang you know and the fact that we were going to get that moment with this is the thing yes it yes. was just kind of awesome. I, I knew you were going to do amazing, Mr. T. Just hold it down and let Manu do the frills and bells the, and whistles. Do the frills, yeah. yeah. And it was, it was, I it don't was think epic. I knew, uh, thank goodness, I, I didn't know that that was going to happen until the day, until I walked in. Um, and it was a lot of fun because he was so nice as he's well. So he lovely. was such a, such a lovely guy. He's such a nice um, guy, considering the stuff he's done. You know, it's funny because often the people who are the most successful are the nicest because they got mm. literally nothing to prove yeah. and yeah manu's played on you know some of the biggest records of the 80s you could possibly name and so yeah. he's chilling everybody knows he's an amazing drummer so he doesn't have to yeah if you yeah. don't know who he is he doesn't mind you know i gotta i gotta tell you guys something that i don't think is in the book and i don't think i've ever actually told you i might have told you both so forgive me if not but anyway um when we did that one shot not i was terrified because i had to play bass between mr t no problem i'm chilling there manu Okay, I'm absolutely terrified. If I balls up my own baseline, this is going to look bad, especially on TV. Um, so, so I was quietly nervous, but uh, um, something really weird happened to my sound, uh, and my sound at that point was going through my own Sons amp, which was running off a battery. It was so early back in those days, I didn't hadn't actually got a, a pedal board with a power supply, so it was just running off a battery. And um, after we'd done it, one of the sound techs came up to me and said. I loved that sound you had on your bass at the end there, the way that it was like distorting and getting more, more and more distorted as it went. I don't, like, what did you, what, what, how did you, what did you use that? And I was like, <laughs> I don't even know. Je ne sais quoi. Yeah, <laughs> what it was was the battery dying in my Sons amp. And I can, I can, it's a pity the recording isn't out there anymore because if you listen back, you can actually hear the bass starting to go <laughs> more and more. As, and I think if we'd had to play another 30 seconds, you'd have just heard the signal go, yep gone i mean and, that uh, was, yeah so that's how close that, that was that was on youtube for ages but then arte cause it was on art it was on the arte channel and then arte yeah something happened and they had to pull it all down it such down, a shame, shame. yeah yeah because it was a, a nice moment where i was walking we were walking off having done the 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 show and guy what? No, don't no? mention it. Oh, it's like, I, I, I still, I still look back at that. You, it was a nice moment. Basically, you were saying you'd really enjoyed playing with Manu and me at the same time. And you said it was like being the meat in a drummer sandwich. <laughs> 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 no, and, I know. and that was on YouTube for years. I know, and I've been reminded of it so many times. That was so nice, man. I was so in love with Paris at this point. I was just completely besotted with it. You know, my love was there, and the city was opening itself to me. I was just just having a great Were time. Were you living there? Yeah, kind of on and off. I mean, I was Euro starring there pretty much all the time. So kind of right, on and okay. off. I mean, Fink was based in the Brighton house, but I was slowly moving yeah. my life over there. We did some good French gigs, like the. Um, Café de la Danse um, in this period. That was a very good one. There's such a brilliant venue, I was just going to yeah. say, about Café de la Danse. It's, it's, um, it's funny because it's down this narrow, tight little alleyway. It's got uh, slight limitations to what you can physically carry into it in a way. Mm. And maybe that's what's helped preserve its charm because there's something about it that that little room is just yeah. amazing. Yeah, I mean, it, is, it isn't all yeah, about definitely. touring, but we also did Sydney. We also did Melbourne. We also did China. It was just an amazing period. It, we just felt like our music was travelling. 
yeah, yeah. picking up fans in far-flung pe- places. And that makes you feel great, you know, yeah, because yeah, yeah. you just think, well, music can actually travel around the world. It's kind of amazing, you know. No, I, I remember um, a feeling uh, dawning on me during this during this time, which I've, I, I think I say in the book as well, it's, it's a funny feeling because it's like the feeling you get when I used to busk a lot. Okay, so if you're busking and you're standing in the middle of a busy shopping street playing a song and you do the song quite well and you get a little gaggle of people standing around you um, midway through the song, you go from enjoying it to suddenly panic setting in because you think I've got these people now. What do I do next? What do I give them next? And that was the feeling that that hit me during the sort of revolution period, because I was thinking, right, okay, we're doing all this touring. The fan base is growing. Everything is great. What do we do now? Yeah, we have to. Yeah, we have to kind of come back. And I remember you and I having a conversation in Australia. Um, so, sorry to sort of globe trot name drop, but um, in Australia, I remember sort of saying, "Right, what are we going to do now? You know, we've got to we've got to up the up the ante next time." Yeah, it definitely um, felt like we were we, we'd hit like a glass ceiling. Yeah, in a really and like we didn't even know there was one there, but we yes. just hit it. Yeah. which was how do we get above this bit how do we get out of the splitter years you know this is we, we've hit a glass ceiling you know how, we, we're touring australia we're touring in china we're touring all over europe we're going to america yeah okay you know uh, uh, people are people are going to be wanting to hear our next record in a way that we've never really been that aware of before so what so what are we going to do how are we going to it can't be the same experience again because that would be a bit soul-destroying. So what are we going to do? We, we definitely knew that um, we hadn't sort of peaked and then fallen off. You know, we were three albums in and the first album had been a set-up album. The second album had been full of great songs but hadn't like set the world on fire but had set us up for the third album where we got to tour all over these places and we were doing... Two, three hundred, occasionally five hundred, six hundred tickets in some in pretty much everywhere. So it was ready. So how do how do we get? How do we double that? What 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 do we need to do? And also, you know, at this point, we'd played Paris maybe six times, London mm. maybe nine times. You know, the, the the kind of you know the glamour was 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 worn off. Now we were like we love doing mm. this, but um, just playing Paris again, we'd like to play you know Seagal instead of. Café de la Danse, how do we, is it us? Is it them? Do we, do we need luck to do this or is, is it in our hands, you know? And so the next, so the next phase, we needed a little, we needed to do things differently, didn't we, basically? Simple and I think um, I also got the sense that you were, um, you know, even more open to other songwriting uh, ideas than, than before, you know, because I think, um, I don't know if I'd brought a fully f- fledged sort of idea to you before i brought bits and pieces in the rehearsal room when we were you know mucking around with songs that were already written but um actually coming and saying right here is a here is an idea from let's start from scratch and make this into something i think that that's what kind of occurred to me that was going to be possible well we did a lot of you know we, we all of us love history of other bands and thinking about music we love music and have got a lot of records and a lot of experience in that and we'd worked out a lot of bands split up over money so we're not going to be that band so we split all the money on tour like completely evenly you know it's a three-way split it's a three-way hassle we'll do it like that 
So what we, I also was getting into, as I was becoming a band, getting into other bands and learning how Bowie used to ask his band for ideas and how the Beatles, um, or Sergeant Peppers, were kind of like, hey, Ringo, you got any ideas? Hey, George, you want to you wanna pitch a couple of tracks? And just thinking, <laughs> I'm not comparing myself, I'm not comparing us at this point to the Sergeant Peppers moment, but, you know, I just felt like, okay, proper bands, it becomes a real crucible of the influences of the band. You know, really, all the ideas come in. And maybe the lead singer writes the hit, because he normally does. But, you know, we need, to, we need to define who we are. Because maybe Sort of Revolution was quite a schizophrenic record. It was quite a bipolar record. It was all over the place. This idea, this idea. No, I'm this. No, we're this. No, I'm this. And I think the only way for us to make it coherent again was for all three of us to do the same, same level of heavy lifting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also there was a moment where you, um, in 2010 this was, so towards the end of, you know, the sort of revolution, I think you said, right, we don't want to play gigs anymore. We now want to just stop for the time being and throw everything into the yeah. to the songwriting. So I think it was, you know, like a moment in the spring where it was like we could carry on doing all sorts of things well into the summer. But no, let's. Yeah, you let's issued it. You issued an actual edict. It had been told to our agent. Was told beforehand. <laughs> yeah. The more, the merrier. And then, yeah, you definitely did issue a right. We need to down tools on touring to start writing this next record. I mean, there was no way we could avoid festival season. It was, it was, it was, it was what was paying our bills at that point. You know what I mean? So as long yeah. as, as long as we, as long, obviously, if we got a festival offer, we would do it because mm. we needed the money. Everybody needed the money, but doing the randoms, it was like, because it's what people, I'm sure people understand, it's exhausting, you know, mm -hmm. getting up and fly and driving to, driving to, you know, Marseille and doing a, doing a gig in front of 300 people and driving home again is, is, is knackering. And you don't, you're not the most creative. It, the creative process is a totally different process from the live process. You need to get really yeah, yeah. into yourself. You need to dive really deep. You need to. You need time. You need space. Or at least I do. So, and I wasn't getting any of it on the road, of course, because you're in a splitter and I'm sharing a room with Guy, and it's just like literally that. You, you, the only time you get to call your missus is on the toilet in the venue, because that's the moment, <laughs> the, the one moment you're alone. Yeah. So, yeah. um, yeah, I needed some space when we, we all needed a little breather, I think mm. after three years of constant touring, but, um, but yeah, so we did, we came home from, was Australia the last gig of the split years? Um, then? no, I don't, I don't think so. It feels like it was, but in fact we did some Holland, uh, lots of, lots of bits and pieces in the Netherlands. And, uh, also then we did, I think the last gig proper of the sort of revolution era was that gig in the spiegel tent in paris in la defense oh my god in the daytime yeah in the daytime it was a kind of a lunchtime gig and that's so weird with no in the way that's right and uh and that yeah that was the last one that was the last one we did gosh that was so weird because it was it was like a lunchtime gig in the middle of the business district so everybody that was there was yes. essentially on their lunch break that's right from working yeah. in an office yeah. that was that's so right. bonkers it was yeah that was when no in the world told me that they had all their gear nicked and that's when i got super yeah. paranoid about us losing our gear yeah that was the one and then it was from then on it was bright and loft writing writing Perfect darkness. Right in perfect darkness. Yes. Wow. That's the next chapter, then, isn't it? Next chapter. Oh, how Absolutely. exciting! That's great. 
Gosh, man. Brilliant. Wow. The Splitter Years. That, 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 that podcast was almost as long as the Splitter Years felt, you know? <laughs> um, okay. Uh, well, join us for Chapter 5 of the Fink Podcast, where we, um, where we, uh, where we leave the Splitter Years behind us. And, and indeed, uh, we leave the, the continent of Europe behind us. We do. We, we kind of get, get, a bit, get, a bit, get a bit jiggy with it, don't we? Yeah, get a bit Hollywood. Nice. Awesome. See you next time. Yeah, see you later. Lovely to see you guys.